Well, good morning once again. <laughs> As many of you know, I grew up disliking sports. I am not a sports guy. Uh, my wife happened to be a sports gal, though, when I married her. Go Angels. So, um, so what I'm about to say may shock many of you this morning. I'm going to use a sports analogy. Uh, the legendary Green Bay Packers coach, uh, anybody know him? Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi. He would start every season with a, with a team meeting where he would surround himself with the veterans and the rookies alike, and he would take a football and hold it up really high, and as everybody made eye contact with it, he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. Uh, it was Coach Lombardi's way of reminding all of his players that success begins with a clear understanding of the basics. And while it may seem a little simplistic, uh, it illustrates very succinctly the need to understand the fundamentals before moving on to the more advanced tasks. Well, the, believe it or not, the same is true in, in Christian ministry. There are some very basic and fundamental priorities that we must maintain at all times, lest we become part of the floating debris on the churning sea of the latest fads in ministry. Success with God is measured in many ways according to human standards, but how does God measure success? That's really what we want to ask ourselves this morning. If, if God were to evaluate our lives, would we pass the standard? If He were to look at you as a Christian and say, I've entrusted certain things to you, would at the end of your life you be evaluated and Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You passed the test. You meet the standard. Now, I'm not talking about a works-based theology. I'm just talking about what God expects of us and how we live our life according to what would please Him. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5, to and this kind of goes along with the series that I wanted to do in the book of Acts, and I confess I just haven't had time, and so I've had to dig from my well and kind of pull things together over the weeks here as Thomas has been out. You can continue to pray for Thomas and Libby and for Bruce and Carol. This has been hard for them. It's nice to see Jacob here again as well. This has been a tough, tough road. So uh, please be in prayer for them. But Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Familiar territory, but uh, let me read it. I solemnly charge you, this is Paul talking to Timothy, his disciple in the faith, and he said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, 
But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. When I was uh, trying to evaluate my call to ministry many years ago, uh, I guess it's been about 20 years now, uh, these words were pivotal in my, my sense that God was calling me to the ministry. And I'd just take, have you take just a moment to look at the text again and insert your name. Insert your name in there. I solemnly charge you, Jacob, or I solemnly charge you, Paul. Just insert your name in there. In the presence of God and of all these witnesses and of Christ who's to judge the living and the dead, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? You've got this valuable treasure entrusted to you. What are you going to do with it? And that's really the question before us this morning. And so, this morning from this passage, I want us to see two fundamental duties that we need to commit ourselves to so that we'll be a success in God's eyes. As most of you know, this takes place at the end of Paul's ministry. He's, he's sitting in a Roman prison. He's been arrested and is facing execution now, in particular getting his head chopped off for the sake of the gospel. The year's probably somewhere around 68 A.D., so Christ has been dead now for a little more than 30 years. Paul's been in ministry for 33 years. If you reckon his conversion in Acts 9 to be somewhere around A.D. 35, then considering the pace at which he ran, 33 years seems to be a long time in ministry, doesn't it? (laughs) The Apostle Paul never stopped for 33 years. And this is it for Paul. This is his swan song. This is the last chapter of the last letter he wrote in the New Testament. This is his parting shot. He's leaving marching orders to his, his faithful disciple in the faith, Timothy. And, and these are marching orders in rapid-fire succession. If you look at the text, there are nine commands in only two verses. Nine commands. So Paul wants Timothy to know what duties he needs to commit himself to in his absence. And I got to tell you, you know, when you read something like this, yes, this is Paul talking to Timothy. And we know the context now of the passage. But we have to say, if this is true of his disciple in the faith, Timothy, then by extension, it's got to be true for all of us, really. If you were Paul's disciple in the faith, he would be telling you the same thing. So the first fundamental duty And we're probably going to only get to one of the two today, just so you know. There's two, but the first one takes a lot of explaining. (laughs) So, two duties, but we're going to get to the first fundamental duty today, and that is to preach the Word of God, verse 2. You see that there? It's 
skip over verse 1 for now. We'll look at that in a few minutes. But preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. It's pretty plain, isn't it? It's the verb keruso, and it means to herald or to proclaim the word of God. So you could take it as preaching or you could take it as proclaiming, however you like. But either way, it means to speak the word of God to those around you. In this case, it may not be talking about formal preaching. Like from here, like from the pulpit, it may just be talking about preaching the gospel to people who are lost. Being ready whenever the time arises. And in light of verse 5, if you notice the text, uh, Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist. So this may be in part... Uh, what he is supposed to do to proclaim the word of God as an evangelist. So, as I said, by implication, application, extension, however you want to take it, I think this is a responsibility for all believers. This is our duty. We are to preach the word of God in season and out of season. We are to proclaim it boldly. And what is the word? Well, 2 Timothy 2.9, if you look back there, just a couple pages, Paul says, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. 2 Timothy 2.15, there he calls it the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, he says there, is inspired. It's God-breathed. It's the Word of God. Now, over in 2 Peter, Paul's writings are put on par with the Old Testament. There, Peter uses the word graphe, um, which means writings, and it's compared equally to Old Testament writings. So what, what was happening in the early church is they would read the Old Testament and then they would read the letters that had been written by the apostles alongside of them. So the, the new writings by the apostles were considered Scripture. They were considered the Word of God. And we live in a day and age when the Word of God has been marginalized. It's been trivialized. It's been pandered by every charlatan who can make a buck from it. Makes me sick. Makes me sick. See these poor folks in Africa who have nothing. And they're giving their money to these hucksters who tell them they can be healed of anything. Just, it's a crime. It's criminal. The reality is that preaching of the Word of God is the God-ordained means of saving the souls of men and women and children. It is the God-ordained means, which means, by extension, that our opinions mean nothing. My opinions are worthless. Our traditions mean nothing. Our programs mean nothing. Our marketing means nothing. Our strategic planning means nothing. We have nothing to say to people which is of any eternal value apart from the preaching of the Word of God. Let 
And as we look at the text, there's really three questions we need to ask and answer about preaching or proclaiming the word of God. And these three are when, how, and why. When do we preach the word of God? How do we preach the word of God? And why do we preach the word of God? I know that seems simple, but again, folks, this is a football. When do we preach the word of God? Look at verse 2. He says, be ready. Episteithi, eukairos, akairos. Basically means good season and no season. Literally. It means to stand ready, to be ready, to be alert. When? In season and out of season. It's, it's a play on words with the word kairos, which means season. It's like a proverb. It basically means when it's convenient or not. In other words, whether you feel like it or not, whether they want to hear it or not. And notice down in verse 3, he uses the word again. There's coming a season, a kairos, when the sound teaching not they will endure. In season, out of season, and there's coming a season when they're not going to want to hear it at all. But you, young disciple, you preach the word. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the response is. You have one job. One job, Mr. French Fry Maker. Make French fries, right? That's what you do all day long. You're a French fry technician. Make French fries. Well, preach the word. That's your one job. That's why God has left you here. To preach the word of God. So when are you to preach, proclaim the word of God? When it's in fashion or out of fashion. When people like it, when they don't. In every situation God places you in. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's a tall order. But we have to kind of say, here's where we'd like to be. Here's where we are. How do we migrate that direction? Right? Now, remember, Paul had no problem saying this because he preached anywhere and everywhere he got the chance. He preached in the synagogues. He preached in the public places. He was dragged before rulers. He preached to them, even when it meant getting his head chopped off. Remember in Acts chapter 18, when Paul got to Corinth, the city of Corinth of the day, that was was the Mecca in Greece. And Corinth, this was on his second missionary journey, but when he arrived there, he was all alone. Silas and Timothy were up in Macedonia at the time. So the Apostle Paul got to Corinth all alone in a city of 250,000 people. The city was reported to have somewhere around 10,000 gods. Idols. And the Apostle Paul was alone and he was afraid. Talk about A tough mission field, right? Being the only believer in the middle of a quarter of a million people. Tell me he wasn't scared. The Apostle Paul was not the Lord, right? 
He was not Jesus Christ. He was just a man. And I think, I can think of no more terrifying situation. I don't even, I think the city of Boise used to be somewhere around 250,000 people. Imagine walking into Boise as the only believer. It would be intimidating. But we cannot allow ourselves to be discouraged or defeated, as I said, by the results of the preaching. You could preach there for 20 years and never have a convert. But our preaching is supposed to remain the same whether we get big results or not. We leave that to God. Paul just tells Timothy, you just preach. You just preach. And this goes for every one of us. The problem is we all have a tendency to be men pleasers now. How many of you are on Facebook? Let me just see a show of hands. So, so you post something. How many times do you look at Facebook to see if people have liked it? Tell me you're not a face, uh, you're not a man pleaser. We all have that tendency. And if people don't like us or what we're saying, we, we walk away with our shoulders slumped. We walk away discouraged and defeated. I mean, listen, the Apostle Paul, they didn't like what he had to say. He was in prison waiting to get his head chopped off. But he said, the Word of God is not imprisoned. That's where we take our encouragement. So when do we preach the Word of God? Pretty much every opportunity you get. You've got to be ready. You've got to be ready. And being ready means preparation beforehand. You have to know the Gospel. You have to know the Scriptures. You have to know how to communicate it to other people. And if you don't take the time to prepare yourself, then guess what? When you have that opportunity, you're going to let it slide. You're just going to walk away and go, darn, I should have been more ready. Right? How many times has that happened in your life? Probably more times than you care to recall. Well, how do we preach the Word of God? Look back at verse 2. So it's not just you stand on a box and you fire all, all cylinders, right? <laughs> you, you reprove. You use the, God, the Word of God in different ways, in different contexts. But you proclaim it. But he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with or in all patience and instruction. Reprove means to bring to proof, literally. Uh, Ephesians 5.11 is a good place to look for a cross-reference on that. Flip over to Ephesians 5.11. So here the Apostle Paul writing again says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. That's reproof. That means bringing things to light, bringing it to proof so it can be addressed. Rebuke means to correct somebody who's in error. That's not a hard one. 
Exhort is the word parakaleo. It means to to be called alongside. Uh, Here it could also mean to encourage or to comfort. The word of God should be used to to bring things to light, to correct someone who's in error. It should be used to comfort people when they're hurting. Every and all occasions. And then the next two words describe the manner in which we are to speak those other three things. Do you see that? With all patience. All patience. The word literally is long-suffering. Suffering longly with people and in instructing them. So it's, it's reprove, rebuke, exhort, and do it patiently and teachingly, if you will. Look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 to 17. Notice that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. I'm on call. (laughs) Pressure. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? Don't miss the so that statement, verse 17. So that you might be adequate, equipped for every good work, right? And don't miss it, the man of God, so that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's profitable for all of these things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And and all of that so that the man of God would be adequate, equipped to do what he's supposed to do, which is to preach the word of God. Right? Now, in a broad sense, a, a man of God is any man or woman who's pursuing after God. But in the narrow sense, in this context in particular, the man of God is a very special title. It's a very special title. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It's over in 1 Timothy 6.11 and here. But it's used over 70 times in the Old Testament. And it speaks of a man who is basically owned by God. One who is God's possession. I could preach a whole sermon on this topic alone, but I won't. Suffice to say, Timothy, you're in good company. If you are a man of God, you are in good company. Moses was a man of God. David was a man of God. The Old Testament prophets were men of God. It's an exclusive office. It's used very infrequently. And I guess as I look at all this, uh, what occurs to me is that the Scriptures are adequate for us first if you're going to preach it to somebody else you need to preach it to yourself first right you need to be adequate you need to be equipped you need to be ready for every good work we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily if you're not a person of the word then guess what 
you're going to have a hard time proclaiming the word to somebody else. And you need to be careful. We don't, we don't want to club people over the head with the word of God. We don't want to use it as a blunt instrument. Right? Let the word of God minister to people in the way it's intended to. It can reprove in certain situations or rebuke in others, but in others, we need to bring comfort to people who are hurting. I mean, would you go to a funeral and bury somebody and rebuke everybody there for being a lost sinner? Is that going to comfort anybody in their loss, in their grief, in their bereavement? No. Let the Word of God do its work. Let the Spirit do His work. If they're in sin, confront them with the Word of God, for sure. If they're in error, correct them with the Word of God. If they're weak, encourage them with the Word of God. The manner in which you should proclaim the Word of God is patiently. And that patiently applies to all three, right? Reprove patiently. Correct patiently. Comfort patiently. And teachingly. We're always instructing. We need to help people to understand what the Scriptures are saying and how they apply to their context. Right? Why do you preach the Word of God? Well, there's three reasons in this text here. And the first reason is in verse 1. So you can let your eyes go back upward to verse 1. It's the imminence of Christ. I charge you before or in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. And, and listen, uh, this is my translation. The one being about to judge. He's the one being about to judge the living ones and the dead ones and by the appearing of Him and the kingdom of Him. There's actually in the Greek the word mellow in the original language and it's being used as an adjective to describe Christ. He is the one who is about to judge. It's about to is the idea with mellow. He's about to judge. And who's He going to judge? Pretty much everybody. (laughs) Right? The living ones and the dead ones, it says. Everyone who remains alive at his second coming and everyone who has ever died in the past. Everyone. He's going to judge them all. And how is this a reason why we should proclaim the gospel? Well, one writer said this. I think it's worth noting. He said to urge someone by an event is to cite the happening as a reason why the command is given and why it must be obeyed. You get that? There's, there's an event coming. It's the judgment. And I'm, I'm calling you to this to preach the gospel because this is coming. See, Paul anticipated the return of Christ in his own lifetime. Paul said, we who are alive and remain at the time of Christ's return. 
over in First Thessalonians 4. We who are alive and remain. He included himself in that. He thought Christ was coming in his lifetime. And it motivated him to preach the gospel for 33 years. I mean, this is an argument for the, the imminent return of Christ, which we talked about last week in Titus. Christ could come at any time. How are you living your life now in light of that? He showed up today. Would you be ready? In Paul's mind, the time was short. So Paul here is binding Timothy to a charge which essentially calls God and Christ as witnesses. I'm, I'm charging you, and here's my, here's my witnesses who are observing this command. I'm telling you, preach the word, and here's the witnesses. The kingdom is coming. And by the way, no Christ, no kingdom. That's a, you know, you want to understand eschatology, understand this. If Christ isn't present, you don't have a kingdom. No Christ, no kingdom. Okay? You have to have Jesus present to have a kingdom. So the kingdom is not here now, I guess is the point. Because Jesus is not here now. So why do we preach the Word of God? Because time may be short, beloved. And people have been saying that for 2,000 years, but it's just as true now as it was 2,000 years ago. It could be today. It could be today. It could be any moment. And when He comes, what does it mean? I mean, for us, it means the rapture, but for the rest of the known world, it means judgment. It means judgment. Those who are alive in the dead, eternal judgment. And that should motivate us to preach the gospel. And God help us if it doesn't motivate us to preach the gospel. You better check your own soul. If we don't feel that urgency, then, beloved, you're a rock. Your heart is still a rock. To send people into a Christless eternity without ever hearing the gospel, we should weep. We should weep. The second reason is in verse 3 the intolerance of congregations. So we got the imminence of Christ. We got the intolerance of congregations. Literal read again, for it shall be a season when the sound teaching not they will endure. But according to their own desires of them, they will accumulate teachers tickling the ear. Just like a baby, right? Kuchiku. Accumulate is being used metaphorically here. The congregations will pile up or they'll surround themselves with. They'll, they'll just crowd around themselves with teachers who will tell them what they want to hear so they'll feel good about themselves. This is your best life now, right? Well, gee, Joel Osteen, is there a heaven and a hell? Do people go to hell for unbelief? Well, I don't know. You better know. You better know. 
Judgment is coming, and you're either going to give them the answer, or you're going to send them away in worse shape than when you found them. It says they will not endure, they will not bear with sound teaching because of their own desires. Their own desires will cause them to round up weak-kneed preachers. Forget biblical truth. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want somebody who's going to, to make me leave here feeling good about myself all the time. To tell me I'm going to be rich and wealthy in this life. To tell me I, I'm going to be successful. They want fortune tellers. I want you to tell me happy things. And you folks know as well as I do that intolerance is what drives this culture. I should say tolerance. Tolerance drives this culture. And the more we hold to biblical truth, the more intolerant we begin to sound. And interestingly, though, if you look back at the text, the intolerance here is on the part of the congregation to listen to what we would call sound doctrine. The congregations don't want sound doctrine. They want somebody to help them feel good about themselves. This is even Christian congregations we're talking about. And why? Because they want their own desires met. We see this happening today all the time. Churches are sellouts. The pastors are sellouts. So Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, Timothy. Don't you cave into the latest crazes. Don't cave into temptation or redefine what the Word of God says. Don't change the biblical terms. You say what God has said the way He has said it. And how dare you change that? Stay with the Word and let the chips fall where they may. You know, folks, this is a problem today. People in congregations do not want to be told they're sinners. They don't. Medical problems, yes. Addictions, yes. Low self-esteem, yes. Sinners, no. We're, we're expected to tell people how good their life can be if they would just add Jesus to it. We're encouraged to tell people that they're basically good people, right? The problem with that is that the gospel is a call to radical transformation. It's not a call to feel good about yourself. It's death to self and life in Christ. You know, I, I like to use biblical terms when I'm counseling with people. So when somebody tells me I struggle with alcoholism, I tell them, you mean you're a drunkard? That's the biblical term, right? Somebody tells me, well, I have an anger problem. You mean you have outbursts of anger? I mean, let's use biblical terms. You don't have intermittent explosive disorder. You have a problem with uncontrolled anger. You don't have panic disorder. 
What you have is a problem controlling your anxious thoughts. And I had to deal with this myself because I, I did have panic attacks. I let my anxiety get out of control because I dealt with it in an unbiblical way. And when I was confronted with the truth, I had to repent. And I'm not saying there aren't legitimate brain diseases out there that cause people to have these things. What I'm saying is probably for 90% of the people who are taking medications for certain things like anxiety or to control their anger, the issue is really a matter of faith. It's really not a medical condition. Alcoholism is a behavioral problem. It's drunkardness. The word they even use for the qualifications for an elder is parawinas, means to linger long beside wine. It's a behavior, right? You're a a wino. We used to call them in the old days a wino. The guys that would come out of the liquor stores with a bottle in the bag, right? They were winos. They were drunkards. But now they struggle with alcoholism. So uh, I guess the truth is, or what I'm saying is, we need to preach the word. We need to speak truth to people. We need to have the courage to speak truth to people. And we need to do it in season and out of season. Whenever we're given the opportunity, that's the call. Third reason, the indifference of the crowds. We have the intolerance of the congregations, the imminency of Christ, and the indifference of the crowds. Look at uh, verse 4. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this literally because there's something in the text that you don't see in your translation. It's a contrast. It says, and from, on the one hand, the truth, the hearing, they will turn away. And on the other hand, to the midst, they will turn aside and go astray. So on on the one hand, they turn away from the truth. And on the other hand, they run after the myths. They turn away. They don't want to hear the truth. They're indifferent to it. They're hardened to it. They're numb to it. And they will reject the truth and instead they will turn to every myth they can find. I told you Corinth was a city of 10,000 gods. How do you have that many gods? Myths. Myths. And in Timothy's day, there was abundance of myths swirling around. And not just Jewish myths, but all kinds of pagan myths and practices swirled around Ephesus and Crete. Look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 4. You can start in verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Myths. Genealogies. 
Look over at chapter 4, verse 7 of the same book. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And Titus 1.14. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. In other words, myths are false. They're not true. Myths are not true. But people love the untruth. They love myths. And most people find it easier to believe elaborated, manufactured myths than they do the truth. You know this. You've talked to people, right? You've done evangelism. How many times do you tell somebody, you know, or ask them, do you believe in heaven and hell? And they say, well, right, I believe this is hell right now, so everybody's going to go to heaven. Right? How many times have you heard that? Really, where do you get your information from? Have you ever actually read the Bible? No, I don't need to. This is just what I believe. Right? And I know, I mean, you're, you think to yourself, I want to slap this person and wake them up to reality, right? Am I the only one that thinks that? I'm surprised that's not in this text, right? I solemnly charge you to slap people who are not in reality. <laughs> I was, it's frustrating to hear the same stupid things over and over, right? Ignorance. It's just ignorance. And these poor people are just on a broad road to destruction. No traffic. Woohoo! Right? It's like California. You know how you sit on the five freeway and you sit, what are there, seven lanes? And they're all full. And you're thinking, I've got to get out of this traffic. And so what happens when you hit open freeway? Right? You blaze a trail. And well, that's how it is with these folks. It's a wide path. And it's wide open for them to just blaze a trail right on to destruction. Nothing's stopping them. But you. You may be that last warning sign that says, hey, you're about to go off a cliff. You know, we have nothing else to say to people apart from the truth of the Word of God, as I said. You can't out-clever the clever. You certainly aren't going to out-lie the deceivers. You don't want a personality cult following you around. Just say what God said. Preach the Word. God's God's Word is eternal truth. Your words are not. You are the means by which God speaks. I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, but like every other man on the planet, I always wanted a Dremel Moto tool. And I got one eventually. And guess what? You know how the story ends. How many times do you think I've used it? 
It's a newfangled tool, but my drill works just as well. My old drill. I love my drill. And, and I guess that's kind of how it is. We don't need new tactics. We don't need to fancy up the gospel. We don't need a marketing ploy. We just need the Word of God. Same old tool. For 2,000 years, the same old tool. So don't just know about the Bible. Know the Bible. Don't just talk about the Bible. Proclaim the Word of God. And you will be a success in God's eyes. Herald, proclaim the Word of God to a desperately lost culture. They don't need tolerance. They need truth. They need truth. And souls hang in the balance, folks. Souls hang in the balance. So, here, I'll, I'll, I'll be like Vince Lombardi. What is this? Uh, what are you supposed to do with it? Preach it, right? This is a football. It's basic, but it's everything. Profitable for many, many things, but primarily, folks, it's adequate to make you fit for the master's use. Equipped for every good work. Works that Ephesians 2 tells us he's prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Know the book. Study it. Read it. Meditate upon it. Let it hold its place in the center of all that you do. Preach it to a world that desperately needs it. This is an exhortation for all of us. This is not just for Timothy. We should all be people of the book. So, the first fundamental duty we must commit ourselves to preach the Word of God. Preach the Word of God. We're not going to get to the second fundamental duty today, as I said, but that will be practice the will of God in verse 5. We need to preach the Word of God and we need to practice the will of God. Okay? Let's pray.